start to look at Facebook in about an hour, you'll see that video uploaded. The Kazoo Band. The Crossroads Kazoo Band. All right, well, the children are leaving with their kazoos and their leaders, which they might regret later, those leaders. But Chris is not with them. Chris was wise. So Chris had the children's message. He didn't have to worry about going back there with the children in the kazoo. Wise move, Chris. Yeah. Now, you figured that out pretty quick, didn't you? Yeah. All right. Hey, today we're going to go return one more time to Jonah. Today will be Jonah chapter 4 as we gather here today to be able to complete the series. We have been through three of the chapters. Today we get to the last chapter and we complete the entire series, A Journey with Jonah. As we review 11 verses, actually 12 verses, because we're going to go back to the very last verse in chapter 3 and then leap into chapter 4 and read all 11 verses in the fourth chapter. But as we think about our journey with Jonah, as you find in Jonah in chapter 4, Recognize how it's been an interesting journey that we've had with Jonah. It's a story that we learned from childhood, most likely, and we've learned a little bit further about the story. We put ourselves perhaps a few times in Jonah's position, or admittedly, we're walking with him in his situation. And at times, it's certainly been interesting and maybe even a little bit intriguing. Because remember, Jonah, in the very beginning, he decides to rebel and run from God. But in the course of time, we know a lot has happened. Into the third chapter, we find eventually that God gave him another chance. In fact, we find in chapter 3, verse 1, that the word of the Lord came again to Jonah. And this time, Jonah listened and he obeyed. He went to the great city of Nineveh, began to preach the message of doom to the Ninevites. Unless they repent, he gave them this message. If we find in chapter 3, verse 4, he called out to the people in the city as he made his day journey into it. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5 tells us the reaction of the people. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Throughout the third chapter, we even find that the king himself got in on the fast and the sackcloth and the ashes. He removed his royal robe. From the throne, he removed himself from that completely, and he also then had a time of fasting, mourning, and praying. And we even see some evidence then that the king himself repented, as well as the people of Nineveh. In the third chapter, note how we see evidence of repentance from the wicked, ruthless people of the Ninevites. So listen. That must make Jonah pretty happy. Don't you think? I mean, he has heard the word. He immediately disobeyed and ran. Then he got his second chance, preserved in the belly of the fish, vomited upon dry land, heard the word come back to him, went back to Nineveh as he should have in the first place, gave them the message, 40 days and you shall be overthrown. And the people begin to repent. I mean, it is like the shortest sermon ever with the quickest response of the people who hear the word. They immediately recognize their evil way and they repent. It's like a preacher's dream. They repent so quickly when they hear the word from Jonah. So that's got to make Jonah really happy, right? 
I mean, I would be ecstatic. But that's not what we find with the reaction from Jonah after the people seemingly repent. We find that message today in chapter 4. So stand with me if we can do so to be able to read actually the last verse of chapter 3. And then 11 verses in chapter 4. Here's what it tells us as we go back to the text one more time and complete our journey with Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 10, first. When God saw what they did. Now that's the action from the people of Nineveh when they had turned from their evil way. When God saw that. He relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So there it is. That's happened. Now Jonah's reaction. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said in verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? But in Jonah in chapter verse 5 went out of the city, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would have become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah in verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah replied, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said in verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, persons who did not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And it ends. Father, we thank you for today, Lord, for the reading of your word. We pray, Lord, that we be attentive to our Last message was Jonah, to see, Lord, how this last bit, even this entire series, begins to apply directly to all of us. So, Lord, lead and guide and direct us here today as we receive your word. We pray that the Spirit would lead, Lord, and that the Spirit would be evident here, and the, Lord, Lord, the words would be from the Spirit, Lord, rather than me, for the ones that you want us to hear today. Again, thank you for what shall happen here today, then, with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there it is that completes Jonah, the book of Jonah. Four chapters, rather short in length. The entire book is not long, but there it is. Now I look upon that and I ask a question to myself and to you. Rhetorical question, of course, but what an interesting way to end the book of Jonah. I mean, notice in verse 1 of this chapter, the last chapter, 
that Jonah's anger, I mean, he is upset. He's mad. He's angry. The Ninevites heard the word. They repented. Seemingly, in chapter 3, we find evidence that they repented. But Jonah doesn't like anything about it. He's angry. He's mad. His anger that he may have always had for the Ninevites could no longer be obtained. It boils over. And he lets the Lord know that he's not happy about what has happened. He's angry, upset, because people heard the word and repented. It gets him angry. Paul Mackerel, in his commentary, offers a vivid description of Jonah's anger. He words this, Jonah's anger had been bubbling up inside him and now comes spilling out when he sees the Lord relenting from the threat of overthrowing Nineveh. It is a depressingly ugly move. As the Lord turns from his anger at the close of chapter 3, so Jonah turns to his at the beginning of chapter 4. He was happy to be prophet of doom, but only so long as the doom was to occur. When God sees repentance of Nineveh and lifts his threat of destruction, so Jonah lifts the shackles on his otherwise dormant emotions and gives full vent to them. I mean, isn't that an interesting turn of events that begins to happen here towards the end of the entire book? I mean, first of all, we have already been through it. We may even already realize and knew before we started the series that Jonah hates the Ninevites. He despises them. It's why he didn't want to go in the first place. He knows of their ruthlessness. He knows of their atrocities. It's sometimes been afflicted on his own countrymen. So he is not pleased at all to go. He runs. He ran from God. But yes, God intervened in the midst of the story. And then because God's intervention, it got Jonah's attention. And Jonah finally submitted to the Lord. So one would think then if everything has happened right now in journey of Jonah in his life, that he would actually, actually be more humble. Might even be happy, if you will, for the people who have repented. But that apparently is not the case at all. Because at the beginning of this chapter, it tells us that Jonah is steaming mad. Now look at who he's mad and angry with. He doesn't really, if you look at the word, seem to be angry at the people of Nineveh. I mean, he don't like them. He wanted to see calamity come upon them. But that's not really who you see in the text he seems to be angry with. He seems to have some displeasure at God. He seems to be mad and angry at God. So it poses a question for us today as we apply the text. Have you ever been mad at God yourself? Ever been angry, mad at God for any particular reason? I mean, many people have. But then ask why. Why have maybe you ever been angry or mad at God? As I've lived my life, I've seen people mad at God. And, and generally I see it happens for a lot of reasons, but it sometimes can be boiled down to simply two things. Two reasons, perhaps, that people get angry or mad at God. The first one would be because God took someone from them that they love. That happens. It's part of life. In essence, they believed then that God chose not to save their spouse, 
or their friend or their child. And consequently got mad at God for taking away the person they loved the most. Now, a thing about that is this. You may have seen that as much as many times as I have. And it seems to be when you get mad at God or angry because he took someone you love, it can go one of two ways. That it lasts maybe for a brief period of time, during that time of mourning and weeping and that time of sadness for missing your loved one. Or it seems the other occasion is that you begin to get angry and mad at God for taking someone you love. And it lasts the rest of your lifetime. Either way is not truly beneficial. But sometimes we recognize the reason we get mad at God for whatever length of time is that he seemingly took someone you love. The other reason that sometimes we see people may get angry or mad at God is because God did not answer the prayer accordingly. They prayed for something specific and maybe they did not receive it in one special way. Now, as we think about this particular reason, perhaps this falls into the category for Jonah. Maybe he lies in the second category. I mean, he obeyed and he went. But yet evidently in Jonah's mind and maybe in his heart, he was hopeful that God would still send his doom and wrath upon the evil, wicked Assyrians and Nineveh. So maybe we could say then that Jonah gets mad or angry at God and that actually maybe is an understatement. Just to say he gets mad or angry at God is a bit of an understatement because verse 1 seems to indicate that he is really, really mad, exceedingly mad. It displeased him exceedingly. I mean, he's just not a little mad or a little angry and irritated. Get the sense that Jonah feels absolute fury because it did not come upon them as he hoped. Like Mackerel said, he was okay being a prophet of doom as long as it happened. When it didn't happen, he gets a little upset. Maybe more than a little upset, he gets furious. But as a result of his anger, as we see then happens to Jonah, at least we see that he began to pray. In verse 2, So Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, continue prayer, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Two verses of prayer. Notice here first that it's rather interesting that Jonah starts his prayer, and this may be the way he should start his prayer, showing or demonstrating or recognizing how God is so loving and compassionate. He says that in the beginning of verse 2, in the initial part of his prayer. But then notice he changes rapidly in verse 3, because now he requests to die. He says, please take my life from me, because you are merciful, God. And because you did save those Ninevites, those ruthless, evil people, it is better for me to die than to live. Now I think about that prayer, and I ask myself and you this. Isn't that a little bit of an over-exaggeration? I mean, isn't it greatly exaggerating the situation? 
I mean, I know that he is maybe dirt stomping mad. But why such a rash reaction to the point where he requests his death? Why? And the only thing I could come up with when I began to think about why he's reacting in such a way is simply because he did not get what he wanted to happen. He didn't get his way. So he throws a little two-year-old temper tantrum, except his is worse because in his temper tantrum, he's angry. He decides, God, it's better for me to just die. Just take me. That's worse than a two-year-old temper tantrum. He expresses it much worse than a two-year-old would when they don't get their way. So with that recognizing that Jonah's angry, Jonah's mad, maybe he didn't get what he expected to happen ultimately in his heart. Let's think about what then Jonah wanted to see happen. Because he apparently, in his mind, had some particular set of events that he thought should transpire. I mean, he is enraged. That there's no calamity. Essentially, when you read the text and begin to analyze it, I mean, you find that Jonah looks at the kindness and mercy of God and does everything short of calling that evil. I mean, he says, yeah, God, you're loving, compassionate, you're merciful. But then you apply that to these Ninevites people. I mean, it's almost like he thinks that that shouldn't happen. It's almost evil to consider it. So Jonah is disappointed. For him, for Jonah, Nineveh had gotten away with their violence much too easily. Even though the repentance that we found in last week in chapter 3 seemed to be genuine, Jonah thinks surely their violence, their immorality, is so deep-seated and so extreme that God, it merits some kind of punishment for them. That's what he's basically thinking. He doesn't use the word sheep grace here, but that's about what he means. So Jonah's angry. He's upset that God didn't bring a calamity he hoped would happen upon the, the Ninevites. He spares the Ninevites. So it's Jonah's anger, as you see then, and perhaps a little speculative thinking that yeah, he, they should have got some bad things to happen to them. So they've been putting all these wicked atrocities and calamities on other people. Surely they need to get some payback. When it didn't happen, he's angry. And he expresses that anger to God. But then look at God's reaction to Jonah. Verse 4. Jonah is angry. The Lord said to him, Do you do well to be angry? I always like the New King James Version of what God responded to Jonah. Because it says it this way. Jonah, is it right to be angry? Now I find that a very interesting approach. In life, I can think to myself this. When someone begins to get angry with me, now I can use the technique and approach that God uses, right? Approach that person to say, is it right to be angry at me? Is it right to be angry at all? So I'm thinking even further in my mind. An application is this. When Sheila begins to get angry with me, all right, I won't do it today because it's Mother's Day. But when she gets angry at me, I can use these words God says to Jonah, and I can say, Sheila, is it right to be angry? 
Oh, no. No. It is not right to be angry. I don't need your help. Actually, I used those words of Sheila this morning, and she said, no, when I'm angry, you'll know it. So there you go. But it's interesting the approach that God uses with Jonah. I mean, notice how it kind of stops Jonah in his tracks. I mean, Mackie, you didn't expect that reaction. Or at least we find that Jonah didn't expect a reaction in a way that he received it from God. And now because he got that reaction, is it right for you to be angry? He now decides he has to have his own little pity party. Verse 5. Jonah got the reaction from God. He went out of the city, verse 5, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. I mean, in verse 5, amazingly, as this now has happened, it's almost like Jonah, who is we know is angry, we know he's mad, and then God gave him the reaction, is it right for you to be angry? It's like almost Jonah thinks that there still might be a possibility that God may still send some doom upon the people of Nineveh. So he retreats from the city, he goes up on the perch, he looks there, and he observes what will become of the city. Almost like he's got some fraction of hope that maybe God will still put that the calamity, that destruction upon these wicked people. So he sits there and he observes a booth to give him some shade. And he waits for what shall become of the city. Allow me to insert here as we pause what I think became of the city. Now remember, as I start to spell this out, that chapter 3 tells us the people are putting on sackcloth, ashes. I mean, they're mourning, they're weeping. They're fasting from the greatest to the least, the king to the least amount of people. Even the animals are involved in the feast, I mean, of the fasting. They put on all this. All that, again, shows us genuine signs of, rep- signs of repentance. It is an about face, if you will, of everything they used to do. A change is evident in chapter 3 of their previous direction and their previous behavior. So that's what we see happening in chapter 3. Jonah sees that. He goes to perch to overlook what's going to happen. Here's what I think is happening. I think they're on the verge of revival. It doesn't tell you that in the text, but think about this. What typically happens during a period of great repentance, what happens when people are just brought to their knees from great conviction of their sin, what begins to happen? I mean, typically, if you think about that, when it truly, truly happens, when it truly happens, most people have a desire to hear more of the word, which leads us to this observation. When revival truly sparks, then the people begin to turn to God like never before. I'm not entirely saying it happened right now in Nineveh, but I am telling you when truly revival happens, people turn to God like never before. That is true revival. That is true repentance. Maybe, maybe not it happened in Nineveh. I'm suggesting to you perhaps it is taking place, but I don't know that for certain. I do know for certain Jonah's waiting to see what will happen 
and possibly the people are waiting for someone to bring them the word even further than Jonah has already brought them. So when revival truly sparks, the people begin to turn to God like never before. Now think about that for just a moment. Because in our lifetimes, we've seen some evidence of this. I know some of the teenagers in here and haven't seen firsthand the evidence, but for most of us, we've seen this happen. You remember 9-11, how the tragedy from 9-11 upon the particular Tuesday, September 11, 2001, brought people to their knees. It was not a church night, y'all. It was a Tuesday. But churches were filled upon that night for prayer and upon all the days thereafter for quite some time. Unfortunately, it didn't last, admittedly. But the very first reaction that most people or a lot of people had was to come to God. At least come to God and say, God, why did you allow this to happen? But a lot of sincere believers were coming to God in prayer for everything that happened on that day. I mean, I distinctly remember that day. I was living in Mississippi at the time, and we belonged to the First Baptist Church of Clinton, in Clinton, Mississippi, a suburb of Jackson. And again, it was not a church day. But the pastor gathered all the people together upon that particular Tuesday evening, and we just gathered on this non-church day and opened the doors, assembled, joined together, and just began to pray for the people of our country. It was amazing how churches were filled Sundays afterward. Yeah, it began to get a little disappointing when it didn't last, so it seemed. But again, it points to the fact that when revival truly sparks, when bad things sometimes happen, it gets someone's attention. And when revival can truly spark, then it gets people's attention and they turn to God. So in our experience that we've had then with just one example of 9-11, then can't we imagine that these wicked, evil Assyrians who were just brought to their awareness of the great sin and offense they've had to God are now, can't we just imagine they're now desperately wanting to hear more of the word? I mean, it's certainly not our realm of possibility. But as we consider that, also think about this. Who's going to lead them in the charge of getting more of the word? It would seemingly be Jonah. He's the one that brought the message to them. He's God's anointed. He's the one that God has sent to Nineveh. So you would think that at this moment when revival might be happening or there's repentance in the air, that Jonah would stay and begin to preach the word to them even further. But where did Jonah go? He went off by himself away from the city in his own little pity, away from the excitement that the people were having for having repented and for having turned to God. He went away from it all. Referring to Macro once more in his commentary, he says, staying on in Nineveh would have been the obvious thing for Jonah to have done. Following the citywide revival, his words, he would have been among fellow believers in Jehovah who needed to know more about the God before whom they had bowed. The Ninevites already appreciated Jonah for his part in bringing them God's word and would have provided eager audience for him. 
But instead of exercising the useful ministry among these new converts, Jonah cuts himself off. His hostile mood to God's withdrawal of the threat of punishment has the inevitable effect of putting a distance between himself and the Ninevites. They have been the recipients of God's grace, but they are no friends of Jonah. It is Jonah's mood, which means he wants nothing to do with them. Isolating himself in this way has led to useless inactivity. When Jonah brings the word to the people, and the people seemingly truly repent from their offense to God, it just seems right that he should stay and continue to preach the word to them. But he doesn't. He has his own little pity incident. He runs to a further away place, and he looks down upon the city, perhaps hoping and praying that God would send the destruction that he wanted in the first place. All of that observation, and perhaps admittedly a little speculation, leads to two application points for us. The first is this then. When we begin to live our lives, and maybe the way that Jonah has, and we sometimes parallel that, do not wish upon your enemy doom and despair, but rather grace. Pray for your enemy. The word tells us to pray for enemy. I mean, Jonah should be praying and now leading his enemy in continuation of God's word. So when you have something with the enemy, just don't wish doom and despair upon them, but pray for them that they can be recipient of God's grace, that God would touch their heart. A second application is that when they receive the same grace, your enemy, the people that maybe you dislike, when they receive the same grace that has been extended to you, don't become jealous or mad, or envious, but rather seize the opportunity and begin to disciple them. Take that moment. God has put you in that path. Maybe you didn't like them. Maybe you regard them some way as an enemy as Jonah looked upon his people. But rather recognize then that God has led you to it. He'll give you the words to to further disciple them. Because it tells us we should make disciples of people. Our Lord told us in Matthew 28, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's part of what we're called to do. When you find someone you really don't like, be joyous. If you find out later they received the Jesus in their life, be joyous for them. Help them. Help them grow in the Word. Help them be a disciple. Disciple them. That's what it calls us to do. So getting back to the story then for Jonah. We left him when he, in verse 5, is overlooking the city. Perhaps, you know, again, a little disappointed and completely withdrawn from what has happened. I mean, he's having, again, a pity party. But notice God intervenes once more. We go back to the text and look then in verse 6. We find now that the Lord God appointed a plant. Jonah's mad. The plant come up. It made it come up over Jonah. That it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So then Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. When the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. 
son beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he was and he asked that he might die and said, again, as he did earlier, it is better for me to die than to live. But God's not done with Jonah yet. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? We read the verses once, we read them once more. But notice as we read these verses, we should call remembrance to the very first time that God intervened and taught Jonah a lesson. Because now we see that God is intervening once more. The very first time you recall in chapter 1, God used to intervene in Jonah's life a storm and a great fish. Now in this chapter, he makes use once more of the weather and the animal or critter, but comes up with a different combination. This time, it's no longer a storm and a great fish. This time, the combination is a sun, wind, and a worm. And just as the Lord provided a great fish in chapter 1, verse 17, here, having already provided the plant, he now provides the worm to attack the plant. All that is because he's not done with Jonah just yet. And he decides to intervene and to teach him one more lesson. He's trying again to get Jonah's attention. So we ask ourselves, as we see how God's intervening again, trying to get Jonah's attention, is this the way that God gets our attention? Does he have to use the weather or an animal or something like this to get our attention? Is that the way it seems to happen? Because you can look throughout all the scripture and find that God uses all sorts of avenues in ways to get people's attention. In the course of Jacob's life, we notice in Genesis 32 that well, God wrestled with Jacob, weakened his hip. That certainly got Jacob's attention. For Moses, well, Moses had an attention-getting moment with a burning bush. In our lesson today, we had, in our class with the boys, we had found that God spoke to Balaam through a talking donkey. And we relived Shrek again today in our class because you have this talking donkey, and Balaam just responds back to him. I'm thinking, dude, can't you see? God's getting your attention. He's talking to you through an animal. Joseph? Well, Joseph put in a slavery in prison for God to get his attention. There's constantly ways in which God is getting people's attention. For Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, he got his attention by just shutting his mouth. There's all kinds of ways in which God gets our attention. If you recall, in fact, many weeks ago in our series with Jonah, we noted how Charles Stanley said there's three particular ways in which God gets our attention. If you remember, he said that sometimes is a restless spirit. If not, then it can be a spoken word given to you. And it can also be perhaps an unusual blessing that you suddenly receive. It's three different ways that sometimes God truly gets our attention. 
But the point of all that is, is that many times God truly desires to get our attention. And we're not having it. We're just not paying attention. I mean, many times, think about the people you know who've been spared of a life-critical accident. Something's happened, and somehow, some way, they should have died in the accident, but they walked away. Amazingly, people don't even think about the fact that God may have saved them trying to get their attention. Or think about someone you know who had a horrible illness or disease and could have died from that illness, but didn't survive. I mean, it just seems that some people get the message that God is wanting to get their attention, but others just don't. So the point is, it behooves us to listen, to spend time with God and to listen. I mean, what is God trying to say to me? What's he trying to say to Jonah? What's he saying to me through the story of Jonah? Is God trying to get my attention? So for Jonah, then, in his story, I mean, he just goes off. I mean, he went off on his own. But notice how we're never really alone. Jonah is not by himself because God is always around. And he uses the worm, he uses the plant, he uses the weather, the sun, the wind, to get Jonah's attention one more time. The verses reveal that Jonah still has a few issues. We all have some issues. And we have some issues, truly God may be trying to get our attention. So in Jonah's issues, God is speaking to him, intervening one more time, because he's patient with Jonah. Like he's patient with all of us. And has one more lesson that he wants Jonah to learn. What is the lesson to learn from the plant and the worm in this last intervention? Warren Worsby sums it up for us. He said, Jonah had one more lesson to learn, perhaps the most important one of all. In chapter 1, he learned the lesson of God's providence and patience, that you cannot run away from God. In chapter 2, he learned the lesson of God's pardon, that God forgives those who call upon him. In chapter 3, he, Jonah, learned the lesson of God's power, as he saw a whole city humble itself before the Lord. Now, he had to learn the lesson of God's pity, that God has compassion for lost sinners, even like the Ninevites. And his servants then must also have that same compassion. I mean, it seems incredible to think that Jonah was not happy for the people of Nineveh. He brought the people the truth of God's word. And they repented. But he could not rejoice with them in the way they turned to God. It's ultimately a lesson for every one of us who thinks that God only has a certain elect of people in which his son died for. I truly believe and will convey to you, I will say repeatedly in all of our time together, that Jesus Christ came for every man, woman, and child. He came for everyone to receive his son so that man would not perish. He truly wants to see people come to Jesus. I mean, think about this. Many years ago, there was a guy named Saul who had zeal to persecute the church and Christians for believers. He wanted to see no part of it. 
But God sent a blinding light to Saul, who became Paul, who then led a charge for all the Gentiles received the truth of Jesus Christ. It's not limited to only a few. It's available for all, Jesus Christ. And how thankful we should be for that. How thankful we should be that God loved us all so much that he gave us his one and only son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish of everlasting life. John 3.17 adds, For God sent his son not in the world to condemn, but the world might be saved through him. How thankful we should be for that. And Jonah has to learn the lesson. I mean, we end our entire journey with Jonah, recognizing that he was not happy, ultimately, for the people of Nineveh. He hated them so much. He, he, was, he, he was maybe jealous or envious that God had actually signed some light upon those people. He was envious of that, thinking that maybe it only belonged to him and to his people. But Jesus Christ came and died for all people. And the lesson then that Jonah ultimately learns is that God truly has compassion for all lost sinners, even the ruthless evil people like the Ninevites. And he expects us as servants to have the same type of compassion for people. So the question really is, do we truly have that compassion? Do we truly desire for people to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord? Because it's our responsibility as believers, as individuals, as a group of believers, as a church, to desire for people to come to know Jesus. That's our goal. That's our mission, for people to come to know Jesus, to make him known to those still lost. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message here today and for the time we can spend in our series with Jonah. Lord, it's been revealing the things we found, the story so familiar with us. Ultimately, Lord, it leads us to a conclusion and a finale that we must have a heart truly desiring to see the people around us, even one we may regard as an enemy. We truly must have compassion upon that person and desire, Lord, for them to come to know Jesus. Lord, we all should be thankful that Paul brought the word to us many years ago to the Gentiles. And Lord, as we recognize that, we're not to receive it and keep it to ourselves, but to go out and proclaim it and to share it. So Lord, thank you for how we have such a wonderful privilege of having your only son to die for us. He took our place upon that cross, and we should indeed be forever grateful. So grateful that we share that with every lost soul that we may meet. Thank you, Lord, for this message and series of Jonah and for this last revelation that reveals. Let us go into this world, making disciples and telling the world of your son Jesus, hoping, praying the Spirit will move them to accept your son. We thank you, Father. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.